0: Hi there, this is Kent Roundy, and this is our second try at starting this podcast. We'll see how this one goes. I have two fourth-year medical students with me and a third-year medical student with me today. Let's start with introductions with our third-year medical student and our non-star of the show fourth-year student, and then we'll have the star of the show introduce himself last.
1: Okay, my name is Jessica Carlson. I am currently a third-year, and this is my very first rotation, and this is my first end of my first week.
0: And your first podcast, I
2: think.
1: Yes, and my first podcast.
0: It's good to have you here.
2: I am Devin Bourne, I am a fourth year medical student from RVU, aiming at going into family medicine. Not my first rotation, <laughs> um, not my first podcast either. But Really? Okay, you know that when, we,
0: uh, when you're the star of the show very, in the very near future, I'll be asking you about that.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just a heads up. Okay. All right, so Kyle, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Um, my name's Kyle Celius. I'm a fourth year at Rocky Vista. I'm interested in psychiatry, so I'm really excited about this opportunity.
0: How, how in the world did you decide psychiatry? So
3: I did psychology in undergraduate, mm-hmm. and I really liked it. And so I went into medical school thinking psychiatry and sort of got sidetracked during the first two years because other things you start to think about that you never have before. But then on my clinical rotations, every patient I had that had a psychiatric complaint would stick with me. So I'd go home and be thinking about them, studying on ways to help them, and I realized, oh, I I have to do psychiatry. This is what I love, so.
0: You also had the opportunity to work with one of my many, I have a lot of favorites, one of my (laughs) many favorite (laughs) medical students.
3: Yeah, Dr. Bradbury? Yes. Yeah, he was phenomenal, a phenomenal preceptor, so. Anyone that gets an opportunity to rotate
0: with him is very lucky. That's kind of the way I see it. Wonderful, wonderful experience with him when he was uh, here long before this. Tell us about the topic that you picked and how you picked the topic.
3: So I picked physician burnout. And I picked the topic because I feel like most medical students and professionals can relate to this topic. There's a lot of symptoms that are described that just call to me, kind of. And I think it is a big issue. And learning to cope with it in a healthy way can make a big difference in physicians' lives and medical students' lives. And so just being aware of what it is, some of the symptoms, and how to cope with it can be really meaningful and helpful.
0: You know Miles, one of my other many favorite medical students, <laughs> correct? Miles yeah. did a podcast on yoga, hoping that yoga would solve depression didn't end up really panning out, mm-hmm. um, and I was a little bit skeptical of the podcast until he presented the idea, and we s- decided to go forward with a podcast that said, gosh, the data doesn't support this. I thought we were going to be going down another p- podcast somewhat like that podcast. This was different. There is a lot of data out there that says a lot about this podcast, right, about this topic. Not just in medicine, across the board. So even though I was a little bit skeptical to start, you persuaded me very quickly that um, even though there are not shelf questions based on this, this is a worthwhile topic. Tell me how the term burnout emerged.
3: Yeah, so <clears throat> there, the, the term was coined by a man named Herbert Freudenberg, and he was born in Germany in 1928, and Hitler came to power in 1933, and he was from a Jewish, Jewish-German Jewish family. So in the first years of Hitler's sort of reign, he saw that it wasn't gonna be good for him, so he fled to America. And he went to live with his aunt, who was cruel to him. She made him live in the attic, and he couldn't speak English so he had this really difficult life, but he was so motivated that he learned English and immediately became the top of his class as early as middle school. He he was working many many hours in factories and then going to night classes at night. And he met the acquaintance of Abraham Maslow from, and he created Maslow's hierarchy of needs.
0: I mean, now, Maslow did not. Right, Maslow did. <laughs> yeah,
3: right. And Maslow sort of sort of encouraged him to pursue psychology. So he became this incredible psychologist and took on tons and tons of roles as a professor and he started a free clinic as well as a psychoanalytic private practice and so he was working these incredibly long days with tough patients and he would go to his free clinic at 1 2 in the morning and watch the patients and they were people who who were misusing substances and they would light their cigarettes and never smoke them and just watch their cigarettes burn out. And as he was thinking about his life and how busy he was and how it was affecting him personally, he was unhappy. And as he was thinking about those things, he watched that cigarette burn out and thought, I'm gonna call what I have burnout. And that's kind of where this term originated. And it, his idea of burnout was something that wasn't quite depression. But it was still something significant that he wanted to discover and describe.
0: I think that one of the things I enjoy most about the podcasts is going through the history of how some of these medications, ideas, thoughts, beliefs evolve over time. I had a very difficult time finding any of the papers uh, on uh, last name Freuden, I saw it both ways Freudenberger, B E R G E R, and Freudenberg, B-E-R-G-E, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had a very difficult time finding any of that history, even though we found a couple of articles, or I should say you found a couple of articles, that talked about that history and, and development, and how he came to think about what he was doing. If I recall correctly, this was a clinic in, uh, it was it was Urban Area Clinic in San Francisco, I think?
3: It was in New York.
0: Was it was in New York, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the first paper came out in 1974. You tried very hard to get your hands on this paper. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: So I tried online, obviously, first. No one had it. I did too. I tried, <laughs> to find, I tried to find illegal copies or a PDF. There was nothing. And so I went through RBU's system, and they also didn't have a copy and couldn't get me access. And I went to BYU's library, and they said they had a copy, and they went down into storage to pull the journal, and they had the journal from 1973 and the journal from 1975, but the journal from 1974 was missing, and they asked me if I had checked it out before or wondered if I had misplaced it, and I said, no, this is my first time here, but the (laughs) journal is missing at BYU, so.
0: I thought that was very interesting that it was so hard to find this information. You mentioned one thing before that I want to—I'd w- like to highlight at the moment. Generally speaking, these podcasts have some sort of shelf meaning to them.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: There is an ICD-10 uh, code for burnout. Tell me about the ICD-10 code for burnout.
3: So I thought it was really funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> We—I think all of us did. Yes. So the ICD stands for the International Classification of Diseases. And burnout is listed in that book, but it's specifically designated as not a disease, but rather an occupational phenomena. So it's in the book for the classification of diseases, but specifically called not a disease. <laughs> <laughs> not right.
0: We do see some questions in the shelf exams. I, not, maybe not the shelf exam, the board exam, potentially. Uh, one of the other things that we try to ad- address here is where the where the information might become important in terms of testing and I think as a group you three identified an area where this might be valuable to think about the difference between what is burnout and what is depression who who tackled that was that you devin
2: kind of all did a little bit but yeah with with to be classified you know as clinical depression you need five of the nine to parts, you know, of Siggy caps. And so what will we found in questions is you have a person who comes in with some of these symptoms, but not all of them. Not not enough to qualify for major depression. But they're still having some of these these negative symptoms. And that's where it can more paint this picture of burnout. But the important thing to know is since they're not qualifying for major depression, we're not gonna be prescribing the medications. They're not gonna get an SSRI or anything. But it still can be helpful for them to receive cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of help with some of these other symptoms that are going on. So it doesn't, they don't get an official diagnosis, but there is still some stuff we can do for them besides medication.
0: It might be an ICD code, but it isn't uh, a treatable condition with medications. Okay, very good, and that's uh, one of the things I think the other podcasts re- uh, regarding depression have pointed out quite often, is that you have to have the right number of the diagnostic criteria to make sure that you you lock in that diagnosis. I wanna jump to the Lacey article. This is the hidden healthcare crisis. Now, when I first read this article, um, this is the case us, the case scenario, I think, is the way it was listed. I wanted to hate this article. <laughs> I wanted to dislike the way it was written. I wanted to say this isn't science. And yet, I quite liked the article by the time I was done. I don't know why. Um, I think, in my mind, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes, there are a lot of challenges with the data in terms of burnout. So, I'm, I did a quick look, trying to find the article as well, uh, the, the article from 1974 from Freudenberger, and I found that there are hundreds of thousands, or 100,000 roughly articles that have been published on burnout. And the first thing that the Lacey article said was, it's under-recognized. And I'm thinking, I don't know if it's <laughs> under-recognized. I, I'm not convinced. And yet, as I thought about the way that uh, Dr. Lacey went through th- about this article, which surprised me, it was in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology, right? I'm like, oh man. Mm, what? <laughs> and, and yet, they do a wonderful job of laying out, in a very reasonably educational way, how to think about the condition and. Um, what it means, where it's at. I think they highlighted key articles that you and I both found later. Key articles came from places like Lancet, came from JAMA. So this is this is a topic that is getting a lot of attention in big journals, and I think this article did a good job of going about understanding. Talk to me about the Lacey article. So
3: I like this article because the language, it was really easy to read, mm-hmm. and it gave sort of a... A, it's called a narrative review. So they gave a, a presentation of a doctor who was just having a hard time working long hours. Their spouse was also a physician and just sort of being fed up with everything. And so I connected with that a little bit because i felt that way at times in medical school and in this intense training we go through. So that's what really called to me in this article And then of course it referenced some other great studies that I really enjoyed looking up and that's where I started to really delve into it is through the references that this article provided.
0: I felt like the references were very solidly done and they ended up being the articles that we found I think as we narrowed our searches Mm -hmm. both independently and together and I think you had them largely first um, but but that's where we both ended up going was to the articles that it had referenced as well. Uh, The definition of burnout I think this is maybe the fulcrum of the rest of the discussion. What is burnout?
3: So it's really hard to define.
0: And basically all the research,
3: this is sort of the underlying feeling that all the articles give, is that defining burnout is is difficult. So Maslach came up with a definition that's sort of the standard definition, and it looks at three areas, emotional exhaustion, which is assessing things like fatigue trouble sleeping physical symptoms the second is depersonalization so this is where you sort you get negative attitudes towards your patients and you depersonalize them and we've all seen this We, I do it all the time without recognizing I'm doing it so for example you have a middle-aged man who presents with a GI bleed to the ER and this man is reduced to the bleeder in room mm-hmm. 402. And so instead or of being... the
0: with, schizophrenic. Yes. In room seven, right? Exactly. Yeah. Keep going.
3: Exactly. So we depersonalize the patients and the patient becomes the disease instead of a person. So you depersonalize them. And then the last area of the definition is personal achievement. And this is this is where you do something great, but you don't feel like you accomplished anything. You, d- you don't have motivation to achieve things. And so you sort of lose this personal achievement. And that's been the, gold, the golden standard for the definition of burnout. And there are some problems with that definition and there's some valid validity problems. So there's improvements to be made in our definition of the, of the term.
0: All of the articles that I read were very clear about those three things being the foundation of burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, depersonalization, A couple of other notes that I have in front of me nothing left to give. Yeah. I'm sorry, that's emotional exhaustion. Nothing left to give, overworked, overextended. Mm -hmm. Uh, Depersonalization, detachment, unfeeling. Um, I thought those were interesting words, and those are words that I, if I recall correctly, are words that are used in like a free response sort of thing that comes, you know, commonly. Um, and then changes in personal accomplishment, inefficient, the feeling of being inefficient, the feeling of having a lack of control, uh, unable to finish tasks, underappreciated, Um, you feel like you're carrying more of the load than you should be carrying, whether that's true or not. Um, And that seems to, one of the things I, I kind of struggled with was the Lacey article seemed to say that there is sort of a a process maybe, that first of all, you're emotionally exhausted, then you start depersonalizing, and then you start feeling these, um, I wouldn't say inadequacies, but the the sense of the lack of personal accomplishment. And then when those things stack up, and, and I may not have this right, I'm hoping you'll correct me if I don't, then that starts to man- manifest itself in work life conflict. So the conflict, the tension between doing what you need to at work and doing what you need to in your personal life, the professional and personal life division becomes challenging. How close am I with that uh, description?
3: That, That sounds right to me. So the way I understood it was really close. So you sort of have this spectrum of burnout. And as it worsens, it can really spill over into personal life and cause really significant ill effects in your life, like troubles with your spouse, divorce, substance misuse, um, even suicide. So,
0: Yeah, we're gonna come to that a little bit more in a moment, I think, but I was surprised at the significant impact that burnout does seem to have you mentioned to me something while we were uh, in the preparation phases of this podcast earlier this week. You said something about, it's sort of like uh, death and dying, the grief stages, uh, Kubler-Ross. I think that was something you mentioned to me. And there's a list of uh, burnout stages. Uh, the Lacey article cited 12 that were, I believe, not Freudenberger, but Maslow, right? And I'm just going to mention those. The burnout stages are the need to work harder, where you start to neglect your needs. You start to displace conflicts, which I assume means you're having conflict at work and you take that home. Uh, A revision of values. I need to make sure I give the best care to everybody. Well, I can't do that. Now I'm going to just do whatever I can, right? Denial of emerging problems, withdrawal, Behavioral changes, people start fighting more, become more irritable. Um, Compassion fatigue, which I think is part of that uh, depersonalization. Um, And although the next step is depersonalization. (laughs) Um, Inner emptiness, depression, and collapse. Now, Lacey added one to that list, and I don't know which one Lacey added. I think it was collapse, the last one on the list. And I thought those stages were very interesting. I'm not convinced that they go in a specific order. At least I think that's what you told me earlier in the week.
3: Yeah, there was another study that sort of looked at the order and there's not a specified order they happen in. But in that list you just mentioned, the first sort of happened first, and the the last of the list sort of happens last. Okay. Sort of in that general direction, but not specifically
0: not a hundred percent. Yeah. It's a it's a general trend. Right. Okay. Um, Let's talk about why Lacey thought this was important. Now, the, it, actually, maybe one step back, there are a lot of articles about burnout. And uh, one of the articles that we, we looked at was a summary trying to assess prevalence of burnout. Tell me about the challenges of that article.
3: So this was a, a meta-analysis studying all the articles on prevalence and when I read the article I was shocked and a little disappointed at the beginning because it says it referenced the mainstream media who says physician burnout is at 50% and you hear that number 50% a lot if you start looking into burnout but this meta-analysis said we found the prevalence rate to be anywhere from 0% to 90%.
0: (laughs) That range seems a little big to me. Yeah, so this
3: huge range in their article. And then they talked about why. And the reason why is the Maslach burnout inventory is sort of the gold standard that most studies use.
0: Over 80%, I believe.
3: Yeah, over 80% used this inventory to scale burnout. And the problems with that inventory are there's no specified definition so the three areas that are looked at emotional exhaustion depersonalization and lack of personal achievement are all assessed in this inventory and depending on your score each study can make a cutoff so they can say they can set a really strict cutoff or a very low cutoff depending on what they want to do because it hasn't been standardized so what ends up happening is you have one study that sets a really strict standard for diagnosing burnout, whereas another study might, might have a very lenient standard. And so one study will say, oh, it's 90% prevalent, and another study will say, no one has burnout because no one can meet these very strict criteria that we've set.
0: So just to to reiterate that, I I think what you mentioned were three specific reasons why there's a lot of variation in the study. The first is that the definitions of burnout varied from study to study. There wasn't consistency in the study, even though these were apparently well-designed, randomized controlled kind of trials looking that that did identify prevalence, right? The second problem is that the Maslog scale doesn't have predetermined cutoff points for what is truly burnout or not. And then the third issue is that many of the studies looked at different uh, outcomes. So there are three outcomes with the Maslach scale, one in each area of, of burnout, either emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, or changes in personal accomplishment, right? So you have now differences of definition, differences of cutoffs and differences in which scales you're reporting and what that means, right? So there are a lot of challenges in having some sort of consistency across the board. Despite that inconsistency, actually, I'm going to wait just a minute more. It's not just in that area that we saw the challenges with the data, right? Right. Where else did we see that?
3: So when you look at, at burnout, there's been sort of a push to find a biomarker for it. So, for example, wouldn't it be nice if you could draw someone's cortisol and say, you, you have burnout because your cortisol level is this number? And there's been a lot of research into that.
1: So I was covering a topic that talk, that looked at the immunology and the endocrinology of this. And so something that I think we all think is a hot topic in the biosphere of blogs is this adrenal fatigue and this HPA axis. but. And they, I think they all want to relate it to burnout is something I was looking at, but there's a whole bunch of studies that contradict one another because there's not really a solid, what Kyle was saying, biomarker for what burnout looks like. One particular study saw a slight increase in only the females who had the quote unquote diagnosed burnout, but then a contradictory study only saw it in middle-aged males. And so it's interesting because we don't see consistency in the CAR, which is your cortisol awakening response in burnout. But there is this thought with inflammation and all this stuff that cortisol would be higher, which is interesting. And something to note, along with this study in general, is this need for standardization in the biomarker search. Um, one other thing that the article was really interesting about and how this might affect burnout is this need to understand the circadian rhythm and how that could lead to changes in cortisol. So it was kind of an interesting topic to look at.
0: So I want to just kind of back up then, and, and I am i think I've mentioned in other podcasts, I'm a little bit of a caveman. Yeah. Right? It has to be really simple for me. I think um, the article, when you and I talked about this before, spoke to some of the things that Kyle and I were just... About most, I was listening, Kyle was talking. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll take credit for that. Um, where there are so many challenges with how you define burnout, with how you uh, define the outcomes on the Maslow scale, with how you choose which outcomes to measure, and now you're adding a fourth complexity to that, which is a biomarker of some sort. Yes. And, and so, in this system of unclear how do we all get on the same page with study design we're having a lot of um, difficult-to-interpret results from varying studies. Yes. I think that's the, the take-home point. Now one other point, one other point, and I think y- you mentioned that this article went back to a very critical factor, which is if your sleep is changing, it's really difficult to get an accurate biomarker that has a significant impact from sleep,
1: right? Yes, and they said that that was a huge thing that science in general needs to understand in this idea of burnout, because sleep is such an integral part of how we respond to things. And I think we could all, especially as med- in the medical field, understand that and we've seen changes with like cutting off how much residents can work because it definitely is affecting us.
0: Yeah, it, uh, I think it was originally started because of the death of a resident in New York City, if I remember correctly. And I suspect that there are more benefits than simply uh, avoiding, uh, avoiding death by falling asleep driving. Um, y- other areas that had difficulty with data that maybe you wanted to comment on. By the way, for those of you that wondered why we had su- such a rapid transition on that last comment be- between Kyle and Jessica, it was because I was like pointing at Kyle saying, wait, this is where Jessica was going <laughs> to jump in. Uh, but anyway, go ahead.
3: Yeah, sorry, I was trying to segue her in there and I didn't do a very good job. <laughs> you, <laughs> you did, did fine. a great job, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so some other areas of difficulty really revolve around this definition and then because it's hard to define it it's hard to to look at it even further and look at ways to cope healthy ways to cope looking at things that worsen burnout so there's a there's a number of articles looking at these things and the standardization just isn't there and so it's difficult to come to any certain conclusions but what the the feel I'm getting from all the articles is it's there and it's important and we need to figure it out
0: I think that's kind of where I was left as well there's something there there's enough data that shows there's something happening that is a human phenomena or maybe an occupationally related phenomena right and uh, perhaps it's getting worse The Lacey article made the made the claim that it's getting worse I think based on our reading of the variation in prevalence, it's hard to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll leave that part alone and maybe jump to the next factor. It appears that emotional exhaustion is probably related in part to work stress. Uh, tell me what causes work stress?
3: Lots of things. <laughs> so good answer. In Freudenberger's case, he was working with difficult patients all the time and I think it's sort of evolved now where we have paperwork, administrative tasks and and all kinds of things pulling us in different directions so I read one article, I can't remember which specific one it was now, but it said burnout's changing in that patient care actually might help burnout interestingly enough. Tell me how. So. If you, if you imagine yourself being a physician and you want to go see patients and help your patients, but you have to spend 30 minutes charting on that patient and then two hours in a meeting with administration that makes you frustrated with mm. how they're thinking, and you just want to get back to your patients, but you can't because you have all these other things pulling you away from what you actually want to do.
0: So what you're saying is the more time you can actually spend with the patients, the less likely you are to burn out. Right. Even though complicated or difficult to treat patients might cause burnout, generally speaking, the more time you can be with patients, the better off you are.
3: Right. Okay,
0: I like that. Changing roles might be a factor in burnout. Uh, Litigation concerns. Mm -hmm. Changes in pay, uh, largely pay reductions. Micromanagement Mm -hmm. is one I saw. Hours that we work, so this is, I think, speaks to Freudenberger, right? Right. Um, How the organization solves problems seems to matter a lot. And I think when we talk about solutions, we're going to talk about organizations, right? Right. Um, Work-home conflict. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes when we talk about people that seem to be at higher risk for burnout in a few specific settings. Uh, where that work-home conflict comes into play. And uh, one other thing that was mentioned was the shortened hospital stay times that I don't know that you three have experienced, but over the last uh, number of years in psychiatry, there's been a fairly dramatic change in the number of days that people are allowed to be in the hospital. So a number of factors seem to be leading that uh, burnout. Now, uh, or work stress, why does burnout matter? You mentioned this a little bit before. I want you to go ahead and go into a little more depth here. So, burnout,
3: you have to cope with it somehow. It can't just sit and fester forever. And if you find unhealthy ways to cope with burnout, it can lead to a lot of distress and bad things in your life. So I think it's important to recognize it and recognize a healthy way to cope with it, especially early on.
0: And people that don't find that healthy way, what happens?
3: so some of the studies talked about this association between depression and burnout Mm -hmm. and there's even a push by some people to make burnout a subset of depression and combine the diagnosis and so burnout is leading to depression it can lead to substance misuse it can lead to problems in the home divorce being angry with your kids irritable it can lead to even worse things like suicide, so it, it's, it, can, it can lead to some really bad outcomes.
0: I was really surprised by all of those, uh, not even with the person who has burned out. The people around the person that has burned out uh, increased medical errors, which harms patients directly, and I was surprised at how little reduction in burnout it takes to reduce medical errors, and how little reduction in burnout it takes to reduce suicide.
3: Right. Yeah, one study said even one point reduction can lead to a significant improvement in these adverse outcomes.
0: And I think that was specifically in the depersonalization scale, if I remember right. Right. Yeah. Um, early retirement is a an outcome of this.
3: Yeah, I, I think in healthcare in general, we're seeing a huge attrition of healthcare workers. So we see it with nurses, we see it with physicians. They just don't want to work in healthcare anymore. They're Burned out, yeah. and they're leaving the workforce. And it's a problem because we're in a situation right now where we really need as many healthcare employees and workers as we can get.
0: I read a number that shocked me. How much does it cost to replace a physician?
3: I think I saw somewhere between 150,000 and 500,000, depending uh-huh. on specialty.
0: I think those were the numbers I saw. It might have been even a little higher, closer to six, five eighty-five, something like that. That sounds right to me. Yeah, it, it was. The number was unbelievable. Yeah, and that's—I I don't even know where those costs come from. I assume it's the cost of covering an employee with temp work. It's very expensive to hire uh, locum tenants. Usually, your organization is paying twice what it usually does to fill that emergent gap. Uh, I suspect that it's the cost of headhunting that's not inexpensive either. Mm -hmm. Um, All of these things are unbelievably challenging. Um, So the other part of this is there seems to be an unhelpful feedback loop on this, right? So if you start making medical errors, that increases the... uh, Evidence that self-efficacy has dropped that you're not effective at what you do, right? It's uh, overwhelming If you have peers that are suiciding and your patients are unhappy That it just compounds the problem. So this is like something that if you get in that spiral, it's very bad The idea that the Lacey paper presented was if we can prevent this That's your best your best goal, right? Your best hope. How do you prevent um, in on an individual level, how do you prevent burnout?
3: So I read a meta-analysis on this, um, Interventions to Prevent and Reduce Physician Burnout. It was a systematic review. And the paper did discuss this challenge we have with the definition of burnout. So it was difficult for them to run their meta-analysis because of differing definitions. But what they found was on an individual level, things like mindfulness, stress management techniques, Um, Those sort of things can help reduce burnout early on. And they said in their article that we don't have a good grasp on everything that works. But I personally, not speaking to research, I think a lot of us know what we like to do to relieve stress. And we don't need a study to tell us, hey, you need to go outside. I like to run, so I don't need a study to tell me, you need to go outside and run five miles to feel better. I already know that. And I think most of us kind of know what we need to do to help combat burnout.
0: Re-engaging with the the activities that you enjoy, right? Right. The Lacey article made that very clear. They also commented that you need to be aware that burnout is possible, that you might be having signs of burnout. Uh, They talked about keeping your sleep in check, right? right? And if you think about the demands of work and the hours, so um, I think we're going to talk about this a little bit more later, those things directly compete in a 24-hour day with uh, being able to sleep. Call schedules compete with sleep. Uh, staying connected to others is helpful. They felt like exercise, something you mentioned, not just because it is exercise, it's because it's what you enjoy. Right. right? Uh, I think they mentioned going Cook, cook the things you like to cook, make the meals that you used to enjoy making, those sorts of things. Disconnecting completely. When you go on a vacation, first of all, use your vacation time, and second, if you use your vacation time, it needs to be, I am disconnected from work. That's something that I think a lot of us have difficulty with in the medical field. And then, um, control your work schedule. Mm-hmm. That's not always easy, right? Saying mm-hmm. Learning how to say no was very difficult for me. Hey, I have work for you. Would you like to have more work? We will pay you for more work. (laughs) Hold on, I can say it.
4: (laughs) Are you trying to say no? Yes. (laughs) Easier to say yes than no. Um,
0: Identify the things that drain you. Identify the things that energize you and work to balance those. I thought that was very interesting. Um, Self-care is not necessarily selfish care. And I think we ran across a couple of articles that talked about um, kind of this interesting aspect of turning outwards versus turning inwards, being helpful and not helpful. And I didn't entirely know what to make of those other than, at the end of the day, burnout is still a significant problem. We need to address it to have uh, good health care and good physician health, right? Right. Um, I thought it was
3: funny too, sorry. Oh, go ahead. When you mentioned it's important we recognize it in ourselves, when Jessica was reading this, you sort of, like, read the definition and
1: were like, whoa! I know. I jokingly was sitting there and laughed. I was like, I think this explains every single medical student that I have interacted with since starting medical school, not just at the end of medical school, unfortunately.
0: So this is the start. That's not good. (laughs) Um, I think you... We're talking about a medical student paper. I'm not sure we were planning on bringing it in originally, or at least maybe I wasn't. But I want to go ahead and have you, whoever it was that was commenting on that before, jump in and tell us a little bit about the article that was about medical students.
1: So I was in a research meeting at RVU, and we were talking about the curriculum and what it was doing to our students and how we study the curriculum. And a particular professor, um, if you go to RVU, Dr. Henderson brought up, a paper that identified that by the end of your second year of medical school, you are the least empathetic that you are will be in your medical education, which those of us who are in a four-year program, that is the end. You take boards, which probably make you more burned out, and then you're expected to go and take care of patients. And so we are walking into situations with the lack of emotion that we need, I think, to take care of these people. And... Uh, course take care of
0: ourselves I thought that was very interesting um, I was also intrigued by in terms of prevention and quote treatment end quote the effects of and that the individual the effect of individual taking care of themselves is actually much less than organizational care I've often told medical students that they have among the most portable degrees in the world and to never feel like they're trapped in a situation that they must stay in. Uh, unhealthy organizations are not worth remaining you know, at work um, and being a martyr for if it keeps you from being the, an effective position, right? Um, so talk to me about what an effective organization does to help prevent burnout.
3: So the article I was reading talked, it mentioned the same thing, that the organization has more power in reducing burnout among their employees Unfortunately, what I read is that they haven't got a good grasp on what things to implement to do that. Mm-hmm. They've started to. They've started to implement things, but the research isn't there to conclusively say this is what everyone should do to reduce burnout.
0: And again, I'm. so I'll refer to the Lacey article now, even though I'm not sure the Lacey article was referring to solid evidence at this point. Mm -hmm. I think what they're referring to are things that look promising, right? And they're talking about having meetings, regular meetings, where you talk about workload or even limit workload, talk about fairness, which I thought was interesting, right? Uh, If you've ever been in a physician meeting, try to determine what's fair and not. um, I think all physicians feel like they have it harder than the next guy, right? Uh, And having a positive work environment and a positive environmental culture which I I spent some time thinking about that I, I was sitting in front of my computer and I think I probably daydreamed for about 20 minutes trying to figure out how you do that and what that looks like and I don't know that any of the things we read provided an answer to that
3: yeah I don't think so they've a lot of organizations are implementing things like competitions of how many steps you can get in a day to improve exercise or having s- these discussions and meetings about fairness in the workplace and unfortunately the data just can't conclusively say that it's working or not. The, uh,
0: the, the comment that Lacey made, and this is the last thing that I took from the Lacey paper, again, n- not any data that I found associated with it. I, I couldn't read the footnotes on some of the things on the Lacey paper. Um, they made the comment that there are times when you simply need to re-engage remembering the energy that you had when you first started your career. And I think the equivalent would be when you first started medical school, you had this energy and, uh, Devin, you're chuckling. (laughs) Yeah, that that goes downhill fast. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, if you could stand back and say, you know what, that that felt good to be engaged that way. I liked the high I felt from that intensity of engagement and re-engage thoughtfully on that level. Uh, the Lacey article makes the, the assertion, I think it's an assertion, that that's a helpful way to not only improve the positivity of the culture and the environment, um, the, posi- the, the work culture, but to maybe infect other people and reduce burnout, which I think is very interesting. I have actually felt like having medical students um, reduces burnout and continued learning reduces burnout. It's something that our unit has um, had, had this really great experience with medical students who have come in and they bring these really great ideas and they ask really great questions. And we sit back sometimes and go, huh, that's a good question, I don't know. And it leads to these discussions and learning. And, and so I'm, I'm under the impression that having something that stimulates learning is a good idea as well. I do think, um, moving away from the Lacey article, there are a couple of other articles that I want to look at just briefly. Uh, I think there are two articles that are probably fairly formative, um, and maybe three that, that we should look at. The first is the prevalence of burnout among physicians. This is the Rotenstein article, and this was published in JAMA in 2018. This is the largest study we have on physician burnout. Um, I'll just set the table here, and I know we've referenced this a little bit already. There were 182 studies they looked at, over 100,000 individuals, 45 uh, countries, uh, and 85% of those uh, people used the Maslach Burnout burnout Inventory, and uh, that was the source of the information we talked about with the um, why it's so challenging to have a good number and this was the the reference source for the zero to 90 percent burnout rate, right Just important to have that out there as this was one of the key articles that I think we looked at.
3: Yeah, this was this article was really well done and they raised some really important points on the actual research going into burnout. And they made a good, they made a good suggestion in the article and that's to describe burnout rather than as saying yes you have burnout or no you don't have burnout is to dichotomize it and say you have low burnout you have moderate burnout you have high burnout or make it a continuous scale so on a scale of 1 to 100 this is where you fall on the burnout scale and their suggestion or their opinion was if we did that we would be better able to assess burnout, rather than saying you have it or you don't.
0: Right, those threshold cutoffs just don't make sense, right? And then I think they were also making the argument that we needed to have a more clear consensus about the definitions for the three types of the three aspects of burnout, right? Right. Or did I, I may have misread that. Yeah,
3: so they, They had some problems with the validity of depersonalization and lack of achievement. Mm -hmm. They wanted to add some other factors into the definition. And they discussed some other inventories that are used. The Copenhagen Burnout Inventory is one. There's a Hamburg Burnout Inventory one that's in the German language that's been very well validated. So there's some other measures out there that they suggested might be better or might be worth changing the Maslach Burnout Inventory to get a better standardization of the definition.
0: The next study that I think we need to mention is the Satisfaction Burnout Career Stages study. And I don't know how to say this last name, D-Y-R-B-Y-E, and I want to call it Derby, maybe. Yeah. what a cool name, though. I think if I had that as a last name, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, this, is, this came out of the Mayo Proceedings in 2013. And again, just to set the, the table, uh, this is among the largest studies we have of an individual population. So uh, what happened is this group sent emails to the AMA, I think, or the AAMC members. About 90,000 emails went out. They are able to track that roughly 27,000 of those emails were opened, which makes me wonder just a little bit, who's tracking me? (laughs) Um, And then they had uh, 7,288 people that responded to those emails. Interestingly enough, the vast majority of the people that responded to those emails were classified as late-career physicians, so people that had been in practice for 21 years or more. And then uh, that was about 55% of the group that responded. And then roughly 20% uh, mid and 20% early career response. And what they tried to do is assess various aspects of burnout. I think they also used the MBI uh, to do that via email. I don't know if they called people. I didn't read in the methods. I kind of glazed over (laughs) on the methods. Um, What I took away from this was that Oh, by the way, there was one other interesting part of this. They used uh, career stage rather than age because that was consistent with the U.S. Office of Personnel Management's definition. Did you see that little Yeah, I did. Did that make you go, huh, Yeah. this is an occupational issue, not a medical condition? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So one of the things I took away from this is they were all over the place in what this means, the way people responded. I, I had a tough time picking up trends. I think I would be interested in hearing what you picked up from this article.
3: Yeah, I, I sort of had a hard time with this one as well. The conclusion I sort of felt like was, or the takeaway I had from this article is, as you progress in your career, burnout will change. So early in your career, you're going to have all these pressures, but it's almost like you're sort of excited and there's not as much burnout. But then in the middle of your career, you get more burnt out. And then whether you, you might leave the workforce or not, or you come to, to grips with your reality. <laughs> but by, by the end of your career, burnout is just not as prevalent and you're feeling better about your choice and your life.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty reasonable takeaway. Mine was a little bit different. Uh, Mine was that, sort, sort of like you were talking about, they were able to try and correlate some of the types of burnout with the situation that people found themselves within. For example, the early career markers were suggestive of a couple of things. First was that as early career physicians, we don't tend to have the ability to resolve conflicts that are work home related, right? So if you have hours that pull you away and yet you have children that have needs of you being there, how you address those kinds of conflicts where a spouse that needs you there, significant other that is expecting you to be around. I can't remember, but I think this was the article that talked about uh, the challenges of, th- this, this is the same group, I believe, that also uh, did a study on surgeons if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think that's correct. And and so I think one of those studies uh, commented on how two surgeons that are trying to reconcile home and life and have busy call schedules and are pulled away and are early in their career and don't have the choice to be able to get first dibs on a holiday, right, those kinds of things, I think they talked about how that played into being unhappy with the career they were in, uh, which is medicine. And what I took away after that was, there seems to be something that happens Uh, either we get better at resolving conflict or the situation changes or we change our situation so that we're in better situations and have less conflict, hard to know. Mm -hmm. And by mid-career, rather than being happy or unhappy that we're in medicine, we're mostly unhappy that we're in the specific field we chose of medicine, which would be uh, emergency medicine, critical care medicine, and so forth. I do think that it was was this article that talked about Uh, the highest careers for burnout as well, or or was this more about the career stage?
3: I think this one mentioned the highest, or the specialties with the highest burnout rates as well.
0: And those were emergency medicine and critical care at nearly 50%. And uh, my recollection is that they also discussed, we think it's because there's a drive for perfection and it's impossible to be perfect in a place where you're fighting impossible or very difficult battles, so to speak.
3: Right. That was the same impression I took away from that. I do
0: think that they they took a lot of parts of data that we saw in other areas and tried to make that fit with the picture they saw. How accurate that was or not, by the end of the article, I wasn't sure.
3: Yeah, and I think that's common in a lot of these articles on burnout, is there so much data out there, you can find data that can support what you are talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: They seem to think that academic physicians were the happiest.
3: Yeah. I came with that same conclusion.
0: And I think that they also, like you said, people either figure out what they want to do or they get out. And I think one of the reasons they felt like getting out was a more accurate statement was because they seemed to have responses from people that had retired. And they were twice as unhappy as people that were still working, right? Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Jessica, I think you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, I just thought something you had mentioned, how taking students for you and the variety that it offers, when you said academics and how they're constantly introducing new ideas and studying and doing research, I wonder if that could be something that would aid, like, engaging yourself in more research to combat this burnout.
0: I. I- think so, but I also wondered, in my mind, I wondered if it was because the hours are more regular oh, and true. it's uh, the, the ability to facilitate and avoid those work and home conflicts, right? Nice. I, re- I remember as I prepared to get married a second time, uh, one of the conversations I had with my wonderful, wonderful wife, Stephanie, was, hey, there are times when there will be conflicts that arise, I'm going to do my best, but you need to be ready to be unhappy with the way those decisions fall out sometimes. And if you can't be okay with that, then I need to know now because that's a pretty big deal for me to have a successful relationship. And fortunately for me, she said, I think I can manage that. And she's been amazing at it, right? It's been an unbelievable uh, collaborative agreement we had and maybe that's something with age, like we talked about earlier, or maybe it's something different, I don't know. So we've talked about, um, I think we've talked about most of the things I wanted to talk about, Um, but there are two or three threads that I think I'd like to pick up and just clarify if that's okay. Before I do, tell me about the Dresden study. I didn't get to read the Dresden article. My impression is that might be one of the more informative articles.
3: Yeah, so the Dresden article is a longitudinal study where they've, set out, they've sent out emails or they even regular mail to residents in Dresden, Germany, and they are recruited to sign up and do this 12-year study where they look at biomarkers and they take, I think, five different assessments to assess burnout, two different assessments on burnout, one on depression, one on anxiety, and so they're gonna, look, they're gonna do these every year and assess the biomarkers every year for 12 years. And they started in 2015, the first cohort, and then another cohort went through in 2016. So the study's not completed yet. It's about halfway there. So this was sort of a preliminary report stating how it's going. And I, I think it, the idea is really good, what they're doing. But sort of like Jessica discussed with the endocrine paper, it's really hard to assess these biomarkers. And there's so many variables that you have to control for that it's going to be, I'll be interested to see what they find in the end, Mm -hmm. but I'm a little bit skeptical that they're going to find any significant biomarker that relates to burnout.
0: Is there an association with uh, biopsychosocial activities that are happening around the biomarkers? So they did discuss that in this study. So
3: when they, when they take their samples, they're going to do challenge tests to try and stimulate a response. Mm-hmm. And they're also going to look at heart rate variability. Mm-hmm. And instead of just taking it at any point in time, they're going to challenge them before they take these measures and see what the response is between patients. So they're trying to sort of standardize that with this sort of biopsychosocial event or moment before they take the sample.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I was surprised because in psychiatry we often talk about uh, biopsychosocial treatment of a patient or sometimes biopsychosocial spiritual treatment of a patient that is in front of you and it, it takes into account so many different factors. I think one of the things we are talking about with this condition, this occupational condition, (laughs) is that there are biological factors to this, which are the sleep disruptions, circadian rhythm disruptions, that do seem to be present. There are psychological factors. How well does somebody address stress, whether they are more along the neurotic line, uh, neuroticism, I think uh, we talked about that before, or if they have a high level of emotional intelligence and can address challenges easily. So biological, psychological, and social. What kind of social supports do you have? How do you maintain those social supports? Or spiritual supports, as some of the articles we talked about mentioned. And and if you can think about all uh, all of the psychiatric illnesses in that context, and perhaps even more, generally speaking, you will be more effective at treating your patients in psychiatry. So that biopsychosocial model is talked about and may not have validity based on research, but it does seem to be um, one of the high-level standards of care within psychiatry. Yeah, so this study,
3: I don't know how much they're able to accomplish that with this Dresden study, but they are trying to standardize the biomarkers side of it and then sort of the psycho part of it with their questionnaires. The social part, not as much.
0: And we'll, we'll see where that does take us. I think the the other thread I wanted to tug on just a little bit was um, clearly there is a problem, whether it's a, a, an HR problem, a management problem or something else, people seem to become unhappy and leave and that's a costly process. It also uh, translates into medical errors and, and worsened patient care, right? So this there clearly is this, um, issue at hand whether it's a medical condition or not I know I've poked fun at occupational a couple of times over the podcast um, it clearly is something that that can be addressed and the workforce can be a better workforce and the employees can be happier if it's ad- it's addressed i want to go back to something we mentioned before we talked about the mbi scale and there are different cutoffs i think the cutoff a common cutoff was around 34 one of the the emotional exhaustion scale. I think the cutoff is around 10 in a lot of studies for the depersonalization scale. I don't know that I ever saw a cutoff for the uh, self, um, uh, what is it, the self-value or the self-efficacy uh, scale. I, I know I keep calling that the wrong thing. Um, the change in those scales is valuable. I want you to repeat what you've told me before about how important the change in those scales is.
3: Yeah, so one study showed that even a point reduction in the depersonalization scale, or I think it was a two-point reduction in overall score, can lead to significant improvement where you see a lot better outcomes, less people committing suicide, less people unhappy in their job, and less people sort of cynical about their situation.
0: I think happier patients were also in that. Happier patients. And uh, less turnover, maybe. Maybe not. I think so. I want to kind of summarize from my viewpoint a little bit about this. So, so I started thinking about, particularly with the Lacey article, I feel like it was very descriptive of experiences that I have had in my career where I, I, I've been working with people who are the most amazing people in the world and then suddenly there seems to be some sort of a change, right? Where there's unhappiness, where there's over you know, the feeling of being overwhelmed, like it's impossible to, to uh, get things tackled. I feel like it's happened to me on some level, right? Where I feel like oh, I'm the worst doctor ever. I can't help my very difficult to treat patients. It happens in the context of disruption of sleep with sleep apnea of all things, right? <laughs> and, and the, the burnout uh, constellation of, uh, I don't want to call it symptoms, but that burnout constellation in that Lacey paper, you read through that and all of a sudden, you start thinking very differently about your work experience and how you might engage uh, a nurse or a social, a social worker or somebody else that's becoming burned out, right? To me, this was an eye-opening paper because it made sense of things that I see around me. I don't, I, and I still am not doing justice to the paper in describing, uh, I, I didn't think their case scenario really was as meaningfully descriptive as the content of the entire paper right. right. Um, comments on that Kyle?
3: Yeah I felt the same way about the paper. The way they described things as they went through called to me mm-hmm. and I thought oh wow I know exactly what they're talking about and that's sort of why I wanted to do this podcast on burnout is because I resonate with the topic and I think most of us probably do at some point in our medical training and careers.
0: You guys are more in touch with yourselves than I am because it didn't resonate with me when you started. As I read the topic, I w- it was more resonating. It was like, oh, huh, I've had some burnout times in my life. Wow, how about that?
3: Yeah, so, for example, when you're taking these shelf exams or taking your boards, you can just get lost in your studies and just feel overwhelmed and sort of experience these, these symptoms that we've talked about with burnout. And so maybe it's the fact that we're sort of in the thick of medical school and taking our boards that we're feeling this way. But uh, it
0: resonates with me. What have I missed? What have I not asked you about so far?
3: Um, I think
2: we've done a pretty good job covering most of it. Can I talk about some risk factors? Please. So, So the readings I were doing were trying to identify risk factors for burnout. And again, it's something where there was a lot of controversy. But I mean, as we do with any condition or disease, like we try and, you know, with diabetes, cancer, like, well, what? It's a multifaceted condition. And what, what things are going to put you at risk of it? What things are going to be protective for this kind of condition? And so I looked at two articles. One was based um, more on physicians um, in clinical practice. And another one was looking more at medical students. But trying to find, yeah, things that were protective or causative that might lead to uh, the burnout. And I thought some of them were interesting. And I think we've already touched on some of these um, a little bit as we've talked. But some of the things that they're starting to find and take with a grain of salt with these studies. But uh, risk factors included female gender, being less than 55 years old, um, having children who are less than 21, I guess because you're you, there's a lot of care involved in the child below that's not an adult. Um, having a non-medical spouse or partner, I know that was another controversial one that kind of went back and forth, mm-hmm. but I guess, yeah, whether or not they can understand your career or not. Can I jump in for
0: just very one quick second? I remember talking about this before the podcast, and I, I was waiting for it to kind of trigger in, right? And it just didn't. I was really bummed out. So I wanna pull that thread together with something we talked about before. Do you remember when we talked about early career uh, physicians having the most difficulty with work-home conflict? Now you pointed out, read those five risk factors again, the very first five. Female gender. Okay, I'm gonna stop you there. Okay. So female women continue to, even if they work out of the home, continue to carry almost all of the load of, of childcare and adjusting to schedules. So they will have not necessarily fights with other people, right? That's not what co- work conflict is necessarily about. It's about having your work schedule and your personal life match up. And so women are much more vulnerable to that that uh, work conflict based on what I think Kyle and I read. So go to the next one. Less than 55 years of age. So. Uh, This is going to be the group that has children under the age of 21 quite often and trying to make those schedules match again and trying to make the
2: home life, the personal life, and the professional life still match. Keep going. And then, yeah, having the the young children. (laughs) Having the young children.
4: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, And then having a non-medical spouse or partner. So somebody that struggles to see the
0: world, not right or wrong, but the same way we do where we feel like we have commitments that are overwhelming and necessary to address now and to not you know, abdicate that responsibility and also the risk of litigation. Mm-hmm. Keep going.
2: And then lastly, yeah, we talked a little about was neuroticism. Um, so the, the definition that they gave for neuroticism was a tendency to experience negative feelings, and this is linked with emotional instability, distress, moodiness, irritability, poor coping ability, and sadness. Um, another place I read about it, they described it as a tendency to be able to be easily excited and then slowly de-escalating and usually towards negative emotions. You can very quickly travel towards a negative emotion and then you have a hard time backing away from that um, and that, that, that those tendencies then add to personal stress and then that feeds into this feeling of becoming burnt out.
0: By the way, I don't think I've ever learned the definition of neuroticism in a way that seems that helpful. Thank you.
2: Oh, no problem. (laughs) I know. I I was was grateful they gave a (laughs) a (laughs) specific (laughs) definition to I was like, that's helpful. Um, And then on the opposite side of that, so things that were protective factors, so in direct opposition to the neuroticism, yeah, was this emotional um, self-reflection, emotional maturity. Um, having your own emotional tools that allow you to maybe step back and deal with things a little more rationally than being excited into these negative emotions. So they found that to be protective. And then in the workplace, I thought it was interesting. They they talked about teamwork and diversity being um, helpful in combating uh, this stuff. So I, I think, yeah, with the teamwork, being able to maybe feeling like we're balancing things out and getting support from other people. And the diversity... I thought it was interesting because they kept mentioning a diversity in the workplace, but they never really went into what they meant about that. So I was trying to, because I was trying to get out. Do they mean diversity of work, like I'm changing my job duties, or are they talking about literal like diversity among different coworkers? I'm I I wasn't able to find an answer for that of what they were describing. But the
0: answer is diversity.
2: Yeah, okay. but diversity. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's interesting because I think uh, everybody's mind would go to a different kind of diversity, right? diversity of tasks, diversity of uh, individuals. Very cool. Uh, Thank you for bringing that up. I think some students, uh, especially in their first week, would be very nervous to jump in. I'm glad you did. Other things that I missed? All right, so uh, this is the time when I ask you guys for your take-home. How about if we start with Jessica and your take-home from this podcast?
1: I think the take-home is standardization is a huge key to reliable diagnosis for us in this particular situation and so this need to standardize and like have specific things that we can go off of but also remembering that individuals are different and they might not look the same because of who we are and so in some ways it's almost like it's a good thing that burnout isn't so specific because everyone has things about their life that could potentially burn them out but it's not on a scale
0: One of the things that I like about this uh, assignment that I have for the students is that it requires them to look at the data differently than they have for most of the first two years of medical school. In the first two years of medical school, you guys tend to focus on here's the question that will show up on the shelf exam, here's the answer, here's the fact, here's the fact, here's the fact, here's the fact, right? Mm
4: -hmm.
0: And yet, when we start diving into the data, here's the fact gets a little bit murky, right? Here's how we come to our current understanding is one of the things that I think this project helps most with, and I love watching medical students kind of go, hmm, now that's interesting. And I do think that the more my students have a sense of the data has challenges in collection, challenges in understanding it, right? And a lot of very, very well intentioned people trying to help help us have a better sense of understanding a certain condition and, and addressing it, that just just because it's very well-intentioned people doesn't mean it comes to us with easy answers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it means that the data can sometimes be challenging to understand. And so um, I also think that one of the reasons we have a lot of variation in data is because of individuals are not a population, right? They can, they a, a population, comprises individuals together, but the individuals still are unique, and we're seeing more of that with the genome-wide association studies. Um, So I love your takeaway on this because I think what you're saying is, you learned something kind of interesting today. The data is sort of murky out there. And the more you jump into different topics, when you jump into your own topic, you'll see the same thing. By the way, have you figured out what your topic will be yet?
1: Um, I'm still, I think diagnosis and like the process of diagnosing in psych would be very interesting. So we'll see.
0: <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. So a little bit of a heads up on what might be ahead. Uh, let's see, Devin, what's your take home?
2: I think what I'm really taking out of this is this is this is an important issue. It's a not well understood issue. And yet it's something that's common that probably all of us, if not most of us, but probably all of us are going to deal with at some point to one level or another. And so maybe making ourselves all a little more mindful of what this is gonna be like, maybe having some thoughts in mind about what can I do to prepare for that in the future? What am I gonna to do to, to protect myself from it? What, what am I gonna do when it shows up? So that I can, on a very personal level, deal with it better with me, maybe with my future patients, helping to recognize it in them and helping them find tools and that hopefully, as we continue to study this, we'll have better diagnostic criteria, better ways to detect it, and better feedback for our patients on what to do about it. But in the meantime, like, yeah, put keep this on the back burner so that we can we can work on this.
0: I like that. Kyle, uh, I'll give you the last take-home. Uh, so I'll give you my take-home. I was struck by the original language that uh, Freudenberger used, which I think was re or summarized in another article, and I think it's original language, but they talked about working with structurally vulnerable patients and how, in urban communities, and how that led to job-related stress, right? Because that's a lot about what we're talking about here. and. That burnout is, in a sense, the shared experience of job-related stress. And interestingly enough, when we start thinking about organizations and individual activities in addressing that burnout, it's, it changes a little bit when you think about it in terms of a shared experience, right? Um, the other takeout, I, I the other takeaway I had, I have a couple of them here, is that I am not very self-aware. I've known that for a long time, right? Um, but I think I've had more uh, touch points with burnout than I realized, and uh, I I agree with you, Devin, in terms of being able to um, have that, maybe not on the back burner, I would use a different word, in the back of my mind and cognizant of the risks and problems and tracking to make sure that I don't go there again, or if I am there, to pull myself out, uh, probably for me, the technique I would try most is re-engagement. Right, trying to remember the excitement I have, and how it's pretty cool when you get, you know, those things going well, and that re-engagement can help me get there. So that was that was my takeaway. Kyle, your takeaway? Yeah, a couple
3: takeaways. I'll kind of echo what both Devin and you said about having coping mechanisms, but the first is on the research, the body of work on burnout. We're gonna hear the term burnout a lot more times in our careers, I'm sure of that. It's gonna show up in the news, it's gonna show up in meetings, and just remember that 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 term isn't well defined right now, but hopefully in the future we can better define it, better assess it, so that we can find a better treatment or a better way to cope with it. better intervention. A better intervention, (laughs) perfect word, right there. Yeah, so I think the research has a ways to go until it's super solid. And then secondly is the research is less important in my mind because I think we can recognize burnout ourselves if we're looking for it and being self-aware. And so I think a good takeaway for this is if you're listening to this, reflect for a minute and think about, am I burned out? Am I? So, so to use Freudenberger's words again, he said, I don't know how to have fun. I don't know how to be readily joyful. And he gave that in an interview. And I thought about that, and there's definitely been times where I just don't know how to have fun. And so take a minute and think, am I able to have fun? Am I enjoying life? And if the answer is maybe no, think about ways that you can, and you can start coping with this and feeling better. And I think if you do that, you will be a better physician, a better medical student, you'll be better with patients, you'll be better at home with your families. And that's sort of my takeaway.
0: This was a phenomenal first podcast, guys. You did a great job. Um, I can't possibly add anything else, and we'll now uh, have a little exam, and we'll see if you've listened to a podcast all the way through. On that note, team out.
3: Team out. Team, team out. out. Yeah,
0: you're supposed to say team out at the end. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks.